0: bandwidth for twip is brought to you by cashfly at dot com and audible.com the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature for a free audiobook of your choice go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash twip <laughs> A Franken iPhone camera emerges, presets, training wheels, or head starts, and Skynet comes to point and shoots. It's Tuesday, July 20th, 2010, and this is Twift. Welcome back to TWiP, your weekly source of photographic inspiration. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. And joining me today on the show, finally back on the show, is Mr. Steve Simon. Hey, Steve. Welcome back.
1: Hey, guys. uh, Great to be here again.
0: It's awesome to have you. Also back uh, from, I don't know where he's been, but Mr. Aaron Mailer hasn't been on in a while, but he's back today. Hey, Aaron.
2: Glad to be back. Good to talk to you guys again.
0: It's good to it's good to chat with you as well, and then skyping in from a Motel Six in somewhere <laughs> somewhere <laughs> inland California, <laughs> where it's 115 degrees, is Mr. Joseph Linaski. Hey, Joseph,
3: and good morning to you all.
0: Well, let's let's hope you stay on the on the show because you know I, I know what you're on a 300 baud dial up or something, right?
3: Yeah, pretty much. It's not quite as bad as a Motel 6, but, you know, it's close. And it's Anaheim. I don't know if that's inland, but, you know.
0: (laughs) Well, it's not on the water. Well, kind of.
3: Whatever. All right.
0: Um, well, before we get started, just a quick nod to our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. They're the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York best bestsellers or New York Times bestsellers. And for listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. And I know, I know that one of the one of the guys on the show is a avid, avid, avid Audible fan, uh, and his name is Aaron Mailer. Aaron, you, you probably uh, by now you may have more Audible books than you do have like regular Dead Tree books, right?
2: I was actually startled to realize how many I had in my library the other day when I looked, and I can't tell you how many I may have listened to since we were all together last. So I'm gonna let you guys pick one of three categories here for for today's pick because I got too many of them to choose from. So, there's either uh, the first in a series of books that are among the best I've ever read. So that's one option for you. Okay. Uh, the other one is going to be um, a pretty good summer fair. Um, really, really funny, entertaining, um, and uh, and pretty offbeat book in a lot of ways. And uh, the other one is is a much darker, more involved kind of historical thriller. So
0: which one has the, special effects and explosions and stuff like that in it?
2: Hmm. <laughs> None of them. Right? Uh, no, it's a kind of a toss up between the two. Well,
0: let's go. Let's go with the middle one.
2: Okay. Uh, well, the middle one then would probably be the uh, the funny summer fair here. Yeah. Um, this is actually uh, I think it was book written in the eighties, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not sure when the audio book is recorded, but I have to say the narrator in it is fantastic, uh, and the book is called Skinny Dip. And uh, the author is Carl Hiaasen, who uh, now this is my first Carl Hiaasen book. And I've I've come to realize and had a lot of people tell me, too, that he's written many, many, many books in this kind of crime genre. Um, They're all very, very entertaining, um, great characters, um, pretty darn humorous, to say the least. A lot of kind of laugh out loud moments in it. And this one, um, from what I understand, is one of his best ones, too. And I think all of his books are set kind of in South Florida around Miami. Um, or at least this particular uh, set of books out of the his larger repertoire there. But anyway, the title is "Skinny Dip," um, hilarious book. Uh, again, it's another crime uh, thriller that he's written. Um, and uh, like I said a minute ago, the narrator in it is absolutely fantastic. He That's really brings ask, real life to the. the voice it's of the always characters. it's
0: always the narrator, right? Because you can have the best book, and then if you get some some person with that grating voice, mm-hmm. um, it it kills it. But the, I've I've been lucky so far. All the ones that I've I've listened to have had. Excellent narrators. and sounds like well, this one does too. I've
2: actually moved on to a second one. I finished that one a week or so ago and grabbed another of his because I was really enjoying the, you know, the, that series. So uh, the narrator for the other is also excellent but just not quite up to par with the guy who did Skinny Dip. So uh, they're different narrators for his different books. And I have to say Skinny Dip has got one of the best narrators I've heard in a long time. Very so cool. it's definitely an excellent choice.
0: All right. Well, if you'd like your own free audiobook, head over to audible.com or audible podcast dot com forward slash twip that's audiblepodcast.com dot com forward slash twip all right let's jump right into it it's time for the news and you know I've been getting emails from all over the internet from and Twitter direct messages and and Facebook messages about this thing that has popped up I guess people know that I'm I like my iPhone's camera but uh, Aaron you I think you might have been among the first to kind of bring this up. Um, there's a there's a, a SLR lens mount made out of well it, I don't know Aaron you you describe this first before we all talk about it what is this yeah, thing? It's
2: um well it's it's kind of a there's a couple of stories that tie together here and and um one of them is I guess a little more successful than the other here but uh, this particular one that I sent you the other day um, is. Uh, it's a 1.1 pound solid piece of aluminum uh, that's been manufactured with an EF lens mount on it, and you can attach an iPhone 3G, 3GS, or 4 behind it, and uh, essentially stick a nice big Canon lens on the front of your tiny little iPhone, which is just—it's kind of disconcerting when you when you look at it. I know the, the shape it, of it; it, it, it looks, kind of looks like a PlayStation controller. It does. You know?
0: It looks like well, it looks like you can hold it. It's like a, a race car steering right. wheel or something. Now, Steve, Steve Simon you're looking at this thing i'm sure are you uh... Uh, Why? why
1: <laughs> i know i <laughs> just i cannot
0: see a, any self-respecting photojournalist like you running around like you know some exotic place with this
1: would you would you do that if you managed to put this thing in your back pocket uh you know you'd probably look fat in those jeans but i guess the big <laughs> question is like you know, why do you want to do this? I mean, ultimately, I mean, I, I love the iPhone, and I think it's great to have a camera with you all the time. But once you start doing this kind of stuff, um, you know, there are better ways probably to to record images. I think this is just kind of a, a fun way of geeking out with the iPhone and, and what it could do. But when I think of it in terms of photographic, you know, taking pictures – um, it it told it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me because I think there are easier ways to do it but but I understand that it's 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 fun to play and I think for video it could be potentially interesting but then but, but then there's video cameras though <laughs> no I, I agree I agree I mean I guess if you have if i created this and I was able to achieve a certain look that was just my own because I created this thing but I guess they want to kind of market it to everybody so I mean i i don't completely get it but uh maybe maybe uh maybe joseph does
0: joseph you're you're in this camp you're a photographer you use canon and you have an iphone is this your next purchase
3: yeah, I'm going to go with Steve on this one and throw out the big why. It's you know just because you can doesn't mean you should. It's uh, it's an interesting idea, right? And of course, we love seeing these kind of things because you never know what brilliant idea will spring from this that never would have had we never seen this. So I, I don't particularly see this as the next hot product, but you never know what it'll lead to. Maybe something amazingly brilliant will come out of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree, and where I, I agree with both you guys. I mean, I am. Uh... I'm still blown away by the camera that's in my iPhone and for what it does just being the camera that lets me capture stuff wherever I am if I don't have any other cameras with me it, it goes above and beyond now when you start you know Frankensteining the thing I don't <laughs> I don't see I don't see where you know why why if I'm going to do all this magic to it and carry around a big you know multi-element lens why don't I just go grab my camera bag you know with my real stuff in it and you know if I'm going to go out on a mission to take photographs, I'm going to use the right stuff, right? I, don't yeah, know. I mean, there,
1: there, there are photographers out there that, you know, will buy all the sets of actions that you could uh, apply to your photos in Photoshop or Aperture or Lightroom. And, and then there are those that, you know, build their own unique algorithms because they want to sort of communicate something in their own way. So they, they build a machine to, to make it happen. And I can see that kind of experimentation but as far as creating a sort of a commercial thing uh, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me but i uh, you know you never know there could be there could be a market there for
0: it Well steve that's, that this is a slight tangent away from the notes a little bit but i i want to i want to talk about that cuz that that's been on my mind a little bit just the back in the old days and i know steve you remember this because you're younger Old. than me probably. <laughs> but but you remember, you remember and we still have it today, but you know, it's it's digital. The the and what I'm talking about just when photographers have their own specialized look, you know, and you could look at an image and say, "Oh, that was done by this particular photographer. Oh, that's a so and so kind of look, that kind of thing." Are those days gone and replaced by people selling presets and in or just looking in magazine ads and recreating that look in Photoshop or you know, or, or does it even matter? You know, I'm I'm curious well, from your perspective, Steve.
1: I think that uh, you know too often, um, you know, a technique is misinterpreted as a style, and you know there are you can look at the work of of Avedon, who used a technique of large format with white backgrounds, very simple, yet he had a real vision that came across in his work. But when you take an image and then apply um, uh, a, a filter to it or, or, you know, and it ends up looking the same as anyone else that would have done the same thing. Uh, you know, to me, that that is more of a, a bit of a gimmick. And I would encourage everybody to to kind of, you know, find what it is that they're really interested in, can't help but shoot, and, and just work along those lines. And, you know, you don't really need all that stuff. I, I think, you know, when Photoshop first came out, people would sort of test it to the extremes. We see this with HDR, people, you know, push it maybe a little too far, but it all comes around, I think, uh, in the end.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, Joseph dropped off. I'm trying to bring him back in because I wanted to wanted to chat with him uh, about this. But you know, just just the preset piece of that, you know, there's 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 two. I mean, there's a bunch of different ways to look at this, but there's there's the professional way of looking at it, or the ph- photographic purist that says, "Hey, you're not a real photographer unless you're you're." creating this stuff yourself and you have a vision and you you're executing on it and then there's the school of thought of hey this is technology and it's designed to make our lives easier so these presets serve as starting points for you to drag and drop this onto your image and now you're 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 pretty much 90 percent there and you could just take it to the next level now aaron aaron do you where do you fall on that are you the i mean you know i'm I use Lightroom. I use Aperture. I, you know, I'll use presets all day long, and I have my own set of presets as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll apply them to photos to get my starting point. But you know, should should photographers be doing that, or should they just be recreating things from things from scratch every time?
2: I don't think presets hurt at all. I mean, I know I certainly use them quite often. Um, and but for me, it's a basis of a, a look at a certain photo and. And it may scream for a certain preset, you know, in some ways. I mean, I just look at it and say, this this really ought to be a black and white photo not a color photo with, you know, a certain amount of grain and so on. I also find I use presets sometimes when I have a picture that I'm not overly thrilled with. I'm not in love with it, but I don't want to throw it away. And sometimes I find that a presets are a good way to get me started on finding a different take on that image and taking it in a different direction. And and your questions to Steve left me with a question. Do you mind if I pose a question to Steve? No, go for it. Absolutely. Um, Along those lines, uh, Steve, would you say that what defines uh, a popular photographer or a well-known photographer? Is it the style or the subject matter? Or what would you say is, I mean, if it's not the look of a certain image, what would you say defines a photographer historically or saying, you know, your pictures look like so-and-so's or along those lines? Does that make sense? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it does. I think that, you know, when you look in the history of photography and you sort of concentrate on on some of the photographers that, you know, we all know, um, you know, guys like Ansel Adams, I mean, famous for the black and white images that we're all familiar with. But of course, we do know that he shot some in color. We also know that he did some commercial work. Um, right. I think that generally speaking, photographers become known for the personal work the the things they 're most passionate about, because generally I, I think that that 's the stuff that rises to the top, and that 's what they become known for, yeah, but right. I think all professional or most professional photographers you know have to do a variety of different things it 's just the the stuff that that 's most personal to them uh, is the stuff that they 're known for, and sometimes it 's a subject matter sometimes it 's the way they shoot you know if they shoot with one lens at a particular kind of way. Um, and, and that comes across uh, in, in a variety of images. I would say though that you know presets are great from a commercial standpoint when you want to be consistent when people like the look of something sometimes you know it's maybe better to dilute your vision for a commercial audience than than. It is to you know they may not be interested in your in your personal work. It's
0: it's all about your customer, right? I mean, it's you have you're serving two masters. On the one hand, you want to be a photographer pushing whatever kind of genre that floats your boat, and then on the other hand, you got bills to pay. So if your client says, "Hey, I like that shot, but make the shirt green," and you know even though it goes against your standards, you're going to do that, right?
2: Are are we just asking using presets the same question we've posed a lot though about? whether a photo should be modified. I mean, there's the purists, Yeah, get like well, it in camera versus, you know, Photoshop.
0: Right. Yeah. We, we beat that one to death. And I know there's some, some listeners well, out I there rolling their angle eyes on It, it <laughs> is, it is. So I, w- I want to pose it to Joseph because Joseph, uh, I think is the only one on the panel right now that is actually selling presets on his site. So Joseph, um, so <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm not going to put you in the position of, of saying that it's wrong. Uh, or not, or saying, not, not that it's wrong, but that, you know, let me pose it this way. So presets for or using sort of a starting point or a springboard towards creating images are, is it is it sort of diluting the fact or the, the idea in photography that you're supposed to craft an image from, you know, the ground up, like in the old darkroom days when you're in there for hours and hours getting it just right? Um, and now today with presets, you can just... You know, click on something and you you got something that's pretty close to being ready to share. Where, where do you fall on that? I mean, is it is it, should, is there middle ground there or should should like serious photographers be doing everything by hand?
3: Well, serious photographers have to make a living and have to get the work done as quickly as possible. So, using presets or any kind of preset that, especially one that you build yourself, is, of course, that's fair game. You know, your job is to get the job out the door as quickly as possible and get on with the next client. So, using a preset that either you built or you bought or downloaded or whatever, uh, you know, is fine. But I think that if everybody uses the same preset, then everybody's work starts to have the same look. So Ideally, you want to be using these as starting points. You know, that's on, on my preset pack, that's really the intention. They're pretty specific looks that you get out of them, but they certainly don't work on any kind of image that you apply them to. And they're really meant to be a starting point. Yeah. You, know, you, you apply that, and then you go, let's, uh, uh, you know, let's tweak the, the levels on a little bit. You know, this one's getting a little bit too blown out, or the shadows are too crunched, or whatever it may be. It's really just a starting point, but it's a, it's a leg up, and it's a head start when, you're, when you've got a lot of work to do. Or, from the creative side, if it's simply a case of, I'm just stuck, I don't know what to do with this image, try 20 different presets and see what grabs you and then go from there.
0: Right, but but just not to... You know, not to tell the dirty little secret about presets, but anybody can make their own set of presets, right? I mean, you could you could go in and say, "Hey, I'm a portrait photographer, and I'm just going to sit in front of the TV, you know, watching watching uh, South Park one night, and I'm going to crank out fifteen fifteen <laughs> presets, you know, that float my boat, and I'm going to store them in Aperture or Lightroom, and I'm going to apply those. So the presets that are in both of those applications, Aperture and Lightroom, are just Somebody sat there and dragged the sliders to a certain spot and said, oh, yeah, I like that. I'm going to save that and I'm going to call it, you know, the magic filter or whatever, Mm -hmm. right? So can people, I mean, unless they like, I mean, not not to take away from the people that make presets, right? Like you, Joseph, for example, because I know you put a lot of work into doing those things. But the photographers themselves, if they're in search of a particular kind of look or trying to distinguish themselves or their work, or make it unique somehow. They could just make their own set of presets and apply those to their own work and then not share them with anybody. And now they have their starting point, right?
3: Absolutely, and it, as they should. And I think one of the great advantages of the presets, one of the things you can do is learn a lot about the application and, and how it works and how to achieve a look. And if you download one of my presets, and you know, I have all these like film look type presets in there, right? And mm-hmm. so you apply one of them and you go, wow, I really like that look, but I don't have any idea how to get there from scratch. Well, oh, by applying the preset, now you can break it down and go, oh, look, it was these six different adjustments that it took to get there. Now I get it. You know, now I understand a little bit more about how it works. It can be a great learning tool um, as, a, you know, as well as a creative launching point.
0: Yeah. Uh, Aaron, you had something to piggyback on that one?
2: Yeah. I just, And this doesn't specifically have to be presets. It might be a little bit of a broader issue in terms of, of editing, but I think presets apply nicely here. How often do you guys go out and shoot with a preset or a certain um, type of effect in mind? In other words, how often are you pre-visualizing a shot and going out and trying to achieve it and knowing that the certain amount of editing is going to be involved in that process versus just bringing in the shots you got in a day and finding that this preset works nicely or these edits work nicely on this shot and mm-hmm. so on
0: yeah Steve do you do you yeah. are but you're you're on the pJ side of things so you're not presumably manipulating mm-hmm. your photos that much right
1: no I am but you know as we know when you import uh, a raw image uh, it's generally not the way you envisioned it or saw it uh, in the field so I think for me what I'm trying to do is just tweak it such that uh, it matches kind of what I was feeling and saw at the time, but I'm not going to go to any kind of extreme. And I know a lot of photographers, if they they can see something and they can see far beyond what they're seeing in the field and they could achieve it um, in post.
0: Yeah. Joseph, what about you? Do you pre-visualize your scenes that and say that you know, I'm this looks great as you know, as as, as I see it with my eyes, but I could do better, you know. And I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna. What you what 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 they really intended when they made the scene was to make the sky more saturated. So let me do, let right. me do that. Is that is <laughs> right. that how you it's, see it? It's a Whirl? bit
3: both. Yeah, it's a bit of both. I mean quite often you're looking through the camera and you, you know right away, you know what, this is gonna make a really great black and white image. Or I know that I'm gonna have to crop this picture because I can't get the framing the way that I want it. Or I know that this scene is flat and I'm gonna need to pump up the colors and do whatever. So you know, I quite often will when I'm making the photo, I'll be looking through the lens with an idea of what I'm gonna do in post. But quite often I'll be looking at pictures and, and kinda like Steve said, you're looking at it going, God, it's just not quite as as great as I remember it. So let's play around and see what what i can do with it and make it look well, better try and try and stemming, get that original
2: memory back stemming from that approach as well and I, I guess i would ask steve this because steve's shot you know had a career that developed in film before you went digital are you finding that the digital world affects your mindset in that regard i mean were film photographers were they thinking in terms of these crops and edits and, and and effects as much when it was a darkroom scenario versus today's digital photography mm-hmm.
1: I think I don't think it necessarily affects my mindset. I, I think I have to kind of resist, uh, you know, checking the back of my camera uh, as often as maybe I do, even though I, I turn my review screen off because I want to be concentrating, you know, on what I'm doing in the field. And I think that was the advantage with film because you you didn't mm-hmm. have that option, so you had to kind of work it. Granted, you may have had to think about some technical issues and think about bracketing at times, but you tended, I think... I mean, I'm not saying this, but I think there was a tendency for some to work a little harder with film because you weren't quite sure where it was going or if you really had nailed it. Whereas now you can have a much better sense that you've you've got it when you're you're in the field at the moment.
0: Yeah. And in the film, in the film days, we had to like not not to say that we had you had to be a better photographer, but in many ways you did because you had to. You had to understand what was happening. There was no there was no looking at the back of the camera to see if you got got it, and then saying, "Oh, that's great," but I really would like a little less depth of field, and then tweak and take another shot. You either had to take a bunch of shots varying your f stops, you know, bracketing, or uh, just trust that you were had enough experience as a photographer and enough miles on your shutter finger to know that okay, when I set my camera like this, I'm going to get this result. Click, and, and you I, did I it. just.
1: I just want to add, Fred, that I see it, you know, with students often that, you know, they're not concentrating, they're they're looking at the back of their camera, they're, you know, in order to do your best work, I feel that you really need to be in the zone, you need to be concentrating and not really even thinking technically, which isn't to say you should ignore the technique, you just make sure, check out the histogram, make sure your exposure is right, and then just work and try not to... To, you know, take yourself out of the movie by looking at the back of the screen, because I see it time and time again. I think a lot of, you know, we've got all the tools with us now to do much better than we did in the film days. Yet, I think a lot of photographers are just not taking advantage of that and are maybe looking at the back of their camera and then and then just not working the scene as, as much as they can.
0: Now, Steve. Before we leave that topic, real quick, I want to pose this to all you guys. Um, piggybacking on that, Steve, in in terms of just kind of understanding the fundamentals, the, how important is that right now? I mean, just playing devil's advocate, we have these these supercomputers in our cameras that can do all the heavy lifting for us, presumably do should we just like let go of the controls and use the force and let let the camera guide us there or or what's the merit in in muddying your brain with all these technical physical physics details of properties of light and exposure and composition well composition of course but you know when when the camera will do all the heavy lifting for you i'll give it to you first steve what do you think
1: um well i mean i've I maintain, like I've sort of created this workshop, 10 Steps Toward Becoming a Great Photographer. One of them is is about doing a certain amount of volume so you can get to the point where you're not having to burden yourself with technique and you can just concentrate on feeling your way through and just, you know, looking and shooting and reacting without having to to worry about it. And I think, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. for a lot of photographers it's best maybe to even put it on program and then just concentrate on on what's in front of you and then maybe in post you know look back and see where things went right or wrong but i think too often um we do get or some photographers get obsessed with the technical and if you're thinking technical chances are you may be missing you know some some small things and and i maintain that just a a, a small element a gesture a nuance uh, a slight change in composition can make a, an ordinary picture extraordinary. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's essential eventually to let your technique become second nature.
0: All right, Joseph, where, where do you fall on this?
3: I think it's a, it's a bell curve of knowledge, right? When you start off in photography, you don't know anything and you're just running around with the camera pointing at anything that moves or doesn't move and squeezing the shutter. And you get some stuff that you like and get some stuff that you don't. And at some point, if you get excited, you start to learn more about it, more about the technique and the science behind it. And as you go up that bell curve, I think you learn more and more and you get to a point where you start to focus too much on the science and theory behind it. And then once you really get that knowledge in place, once it becomes second nature, Then you start going back down the other side of the curve, going back towards just being creative, and the science is just part of you. You don't think about it anymore. It just becomes second nature. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, I I, I totally – I have to agree with that because it's – yeah, you can use use the – basically use the camera settings as training wheels until you can pedal by yourself, right? And but you should be pedaling by yourself, Aaron. Do you? Are you using the force? or Are you pedaling by yourself?
2: <laughs> I think the other guys have covered it pretty well, but I, I'd have to say the way I approach it depends on the shooting situation I'm in. Because if if uh, if I'm pursuing something more creative, if I've got time to be shooting a a certain scene where in my mind I'm kind of getting a concept of I know I want a really shallow depth of field here, and I want to bring this into focus and frame it this way. At that point, I may be working with the camera a little more. From a technical perspective, if I'm at an event in a lot of cases where I don't have time to be thinking about that and I just need to document what's there, granted I'd still like to be creative with it if I can, but at that point is when I want the camera to handle more of it and just you know get me a decent exposure, make sure I grab the scene, make sure the key things are in focus you know I'll worry about the rest of it later and what i'm focusing on in that case too then is trying to to bring the creativity into the picture in what i'm shooting who i'm shooting what the gestures and the nuances and the you know the people themselves the framing of the shots the type of thing and i'm worrying a whole lot less about the the technical matters and that's when i really do want the camera to, to kind of do the lifting for me
0: yep okay Good. All right, guys. Let's move on. Uh, there's a couple of other things in here we want to, ch- we want to chat about, and specifically, it's these new uh, digital compact cameras that are coming out. Oh, Panasonic has has one out. Sony has unveiled a bunch of new little throw in your pocket digital cameras that do some amazing things. Uh, Aaron, you know, since you're you're you were just talking, what do you what do you think about this? I mean, we've got the Sony CyberShot. What is it? All these Sony product names. I'm looking at the DSC WX. 5 the dsc tx9 and the they need to go talk to apple's like product naming department I think, or right. some, or somebody really just give it a name you know um, this will
2: change constantly as they put out three models a year uh, you know, oh 10 models goodness. a year how many
0: now do you what do you think about these little cameras they're becoming increasingly capable uh to do some really cool stuff with and and in many cases you know reaching the dslr kind of quality right. range what are, are you teed up to get one of these
2: I'm still too much of a DSLR nerd, I think, to, to make that move. I mean, my my pocket camera is my iPhone 4, so I think I'm kind of in the same boat with you on that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm pretty impressed with the features on it. I mean, it's pretty amazing as I read through, and I was looking at the notes earlier before the show and just looking at the sheer number of, of interesting things this does, and including increasing the dynamic range by taking... You know, a sequence of shots rapidly, almost kind of a semi-HDR type of effect, I would gather, Mm -hmm. which, and I I put in the notes here that I was really curious kind of how some of that's pulled off because, you know, I think about when I'm doing HDR shots and all the restrictions I have to deal with in that case. I mean, I don't want to alter the aperture because I don't want my depth of field to change between shots when I do the compositing later, you know. uh vary the shutter speed, but some of them are going to be slow shutter speeds and some will be fast, so I don't want any moving objects in the scene, you know, that in a multi-shot thing. So I'm really curious to see how the camera assembles or, or what a good job, you know, how good of a job it does yeah. in doing a two to six shot range, you know, boost and that type of thing. But stuff like 3D sweeping panoramas and all, it sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, it sounds like a neat thing to to make use of, but it, it's also not what fits my personal shooting needs most of the time either.
0: Yeah. And we talked about this, uh, Steve, I know you, you know we talked about this a lot on the show in the past in terms of a lot of these techniques that we we were kind of throwing back and forth or debating on whether it's real photography or not because it's, you know, you've done it outside of the camera and, you know, now the camera itself is manipulating images before it even gives you a file out of it. So now as a, as a PJ, are you... Is this in your future to get one of these cameras and start doing this stuff? And and where where do you, as, as someone who's getting paid to do this kind of photography or do like documentary type photography, where do you draw the line on how much you're going to let your camera do and and sacrifice some really good images that you presumably could get?
1: Well, I mean... You know, I I think we're looking at, you know, the first flying car because when I looked at the features of this thing, I was just amazed. I mean, we talked about the future of, you know, sensors being able to achieve greater dynamic range with a kind of built-in HDR capability. and, And that's what Aaron was describing. That seems to be one of the features it has. This sweeping panoramic thing where you can sort of pan around and it stitches the camera, the pictures together in camera, but it adds 3d to this which is something new and i think something we're probably going to see more of it's also got this background defocus thing which will and and it's not just kind of a a photoshop blur it's it's an actual two exposure one I, i'm guessing at different f-stop and and or different focuses and it, it gives you um you know the kind of thing you'd get with all, the the bouquet you'd get with like a 1.4 lens so i mean I can't even imagine what the future is going to look like in five or ten years in the DSLR market. It's, it's hard, but I think we're starting to see some of the things um, reveal themselves in these small cameras. And, and Sony's uh, kind of uh, got some really unique unique stuff in there that, that looks kind of interesting. I myself, aren't, you know, I'm not going to use that for the work that I do, but, but uh, I think we're seeing the future um, and, and more to come.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's two halves of one whole, right? I mean, on the one half you have camera manufacturers like Sony, Panasonic, etc. coming on with with the this magic happening inside the camera at shutter press. And then on the other side you've got companies like Adobe coming on strong with their advanced digital labs and making all this crazy stuff to do to the photo. After you get it out of the camera and at some point they're going to cross the streams and then, you know, the universe will end.
2: So- I still side with after. <laughs> I just want to stick to after. I don't, I don't like the decisions being made or altered. Like I, I think the de-wrinkle, you know, skin tone, de-wrinkle thing they mentioned is kind of interesting. But. I don't want that to misfire. I don't know how well it applies it, and I may not want that effect, you know, applied. If I do, I want
0: to do it myself later.
1: You know? mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it well, looks looks good on Fred's uh, headshot that he uses. I
0: know. <laughs> yeah, baby. Now, uh, Joseph, are you uh, are you in the market for one of these like magic kind of robotic Cybertronic cameras?
3: <laughs> well, you know what? Ironically, I was. Uh, just because I wanted to get a new point and shoot and wanted have, I wanted to have – I wanted to something with all the bells and whistles and all the GPS. And uh, we actually talked about it on this show before the camera. I don't even remember the model now. I think it was a Sony that I was seriously considering. And it had this, this pan or 3D sweep panorama thing. I guess not 3D but the sweep panorama. And these are all really, really cool features. I love it. But the reason I didn't buy one is because I thought, no, wait a minute. I'm about to get an iPhone 4. And frankly, that does everything that I want, including having the GPS. It's got the higher-res camera. It's not 12 megapixel, but for point-and-shoot, I don't need 12 megapixel. So I can get what I need out of my iPhone, and I can add apps to it. And I think that's why we're seeing so many of these crazy features like skin softening mode getting applied to these cameras because the manufacturers are realizing they're competing with camera phones now. They're legitimately having to compete with the Nexuses and the iPhones and the Droids and all these other ones out there that have increasingly higher resolution cameras and increasingly better lenses.
1: Yeah. And Joseph, like I, I said,
3: I made oh, the decision. I, looked a, oh, I was just going to say, I made the decision to say, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to get the iPhone 4 and, and go with it.
1: Yeah, I was, I was just going to add to that, Joseph. I, I totally agree with you. I think that um, the small camera market is eventually going to meld into the camera phone market because I think people generally would rather have one device to carry around than than more than one and and I think some of the four-thirds cameras uh, Nikon is rumored to be coming out with some sort of evil system that they they've been talking about uh, on the internet quite a bit I think maybe a smaller form factor DSLR like we're seeing um, may just be the the future of cameras um, you know uh, of just sort of one use cameras, whereas uh, it sort of makes sense to if people are happy with uh, the resolution they 're getting with their phone cameras that that a lot of these things get get incorporated into them.
0: Yeah, I wonder what's to stop, you know, kind of flipping it on its head. I wonder what, 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 what's to stop these uh, camera manufacturers that are making these compacts, like Sony would be a prime target for this, or Nikon or Ken, who, Olympus, whoever, to say, hey, compact camera or compact division, make a phone. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's, let's, you know, Apple decided to make, you know, phones. Let's uh, play in their yard. Let's make, a, let's make a phone that has a camera in it kind of thing. I, now, that that would be interesting. Go ahead.
3: That is, like, go, ahead go ahead, Joe. Okay, that is very much what Sony Ericsson did. Um, back in the day, a few years ago, before the iPhone, well before the iPhone, Sony branded out, there was a Sony Ericsson camera phone, or several of them, that were designated or branded as Sony Cybershot slash phones. And it was a modern cell phone slapped onto the back of a little Sony Cybershot camera. And you know what? The pictures out of that thing were awesome, mm-hmm. and they were tiny. Smaller than the iPhone is today. Yeah, think like why not? Why not build build around it? You know, if
0: it's someone like me who wants, you know, well, I'm kind of on the edge, but if you can build, start with the start with the camera and build a phone around it instead of vice versa, like we're like we're we're used to now in our smartphones. I think you could, uh, you know, we could have something. I don't know. What were you going to say, Aaron?
2: I was just going to say I, I haven't seen one of these firsthand, and I would enjoy playing with one. I mean, being the geek in my genes here, but uh, um. My biggest question, though, is, are the designers, what's the user interface look like on this? I mean, I'm looking at the sheer bullet list here of, of interesting things it does. And how is all of that implemented and expressed in the form factor of the camera in terms of user interface? And how many buyers in the market are you know ready to utilize all that is my other question. Yeah, wade through. Is mom going to?
0: Yeah. Is <laughs> mom going to mom gonna wade through levels and levels of menus to get to that one feature? Right. Or did they? did they uh did they nail it and make it so that it's a button press away exactly yeah i'm
2: not saying it's either way i'm I'm saying i'd be curious to see all right how that's implemented
0: all right let's move on to some listener q a every week our producers scour the twip forums at thisweekinphoto.com forward slash forum to find the best questions for us to answer in the show and uh these are some of this week's questions the first one is from uh let me see if i can get this name right morton shiel morton shiel Um, And I'm going to throw this one to you, Aaron. You want to read the question and and throw your answer in?
2: Uh, Morton says, I love making panoramas, but I haven't found a decent way of sharing them online. What do you guys recommend in terms of file format and online hosting? Any nugget of wisdom you have to spare on making beautiful panoramas would be much appreciated. Uh, Coincidentally, this kind of ties into my pick of the week that we'll get to later. Uh, But Morton, I would have you take a quick look anyway at the Gigapan, gigapan gigapan.org, G-I-G-A-P-A-N.org. That's the the hosting site and community behind the GigaPan panoramic heads. Um, and what I was surprised to find recently was that it's completely open. The down the uploader application they use for uploading panos to their site is completely free. And um, and the panos that you create do not need to originate on GigaPan hardware or from their stitching software. I see plenty of panos up there created with other packages by other people. So it's essentially a hosting uh, site for Giga. giga well, not doesn't have to be gigapixel, but panoramas, really, is what it comes down to. Um, it may not completely fit your needs, but it's certainly worth looking at. It won't cost you a penny to utilize it, um, and it's a pretty neat community. And I'll, I'll talk a little more about it later um, when we get to the pics of the week. But aside from that in the past, when I've done um, uh, QuickTime VRs and other types of panel work, I've always uh, just hosted them on my own blogs uh, using you know, QuickTime Uh, hoping that the user has a QuickTime plug-in or occasionally embedding a Flash plug-in of some sort. Um, And there's certainly a lot of options for doing that as well. So if you have a blog or or other site that you've done where you have the capability to plug in content like that, you could certainly go that route as well. But uh, if you're looking for somewhere that's going to be pretty simple to just upload it and let them take care of most of the technical side of it, um, the GigaPan site might be worth checking out because you can embed your GigaPans in other sites as well, very much like you embed a YouTube video.
0: Yeah. All right. All right, moving on. Uh, question number two is from David from Sheffield, UK. He says, way back you did an episode about Ron Brinkman's bag. Any chance of doing something similar with yourselves or guests? It would be interesting to see what pros consider essential and how much can be fitted to, into a carry-on. So the, my answer to that would be yes, we do plan on doing that. And now that we have a new site uh, that we're going to be able to put a lot of video and in, in, you know share these kind of things with you um, we 'll be doing much more of that um, the stream the, the, will from time to time for special events inside the podcast audio stream that you 're listening to now we may insert a video. Um, but for, by and large, where you'll find that multimedia or the video and screencast and bag walkthrough type stuff will be at thisweekinphoto.com. So that stuff is is coming soon. So thanks for your question, David, from Sheffield, UK. All right. Next question up, number three, vintage pre-moon. It cannot be a real name. Um, I'm going to – who wants to take this, Joseph or,
3: uh, or Steve? I can take it because I've, I've actually had this happen before. All right. Mm-hmm. Go for it. All right, so the question is, and, and by the way, um, to this user who wrote the question, when you're posting on the forums, if you include your real name, we will say your name on the show. So um, you know, go ahead and get, get yourself a little shout out. Put your real name in the forums there, please. Or better, so yet, question- put,
0: or better yet, put your Twitter name in there. We'll, re- we'll mention that. How about that? There you
3: go. There you Even go. better. All right, so the question is, I bought a 50D, it's a Canon 50D, about three months ago. And the other day, I was shooting some sample product shots using the live function, that's the live view function, on the camera, and the camera completely froze up. I turned it off and back on, same thing. It randomly fired twice each time, firing the flash. I was in manual mode in a cool environment, although I had been shooting for two hours at that point. Camera did not feel hot. I finally pulled the battery in, let the camera sit for 30 minutes, installed the battery again, and it was fine. Have any of you 50D guys experienced this issue? So I do not have a 50D. I have the 5D Mark II, and I have seen a very similar issue to that um, when shooting tethered and also when shooting with live view uh, for extended periods of time. And I think that you're on the right track there, when you mentioned that it didn't feel hot, but you aren't feeling the sensor, the sensor will heat up dramatically when you're in live view mode. It kind of goes to the same reason that you can't shoot, uh, you can't shoot a photo on uh, more than 30 seconds long or 30 seconds duration without getting some serious noise issues in the file because the sensor just overheats and you start to get some really funky noise showing up. Mm-hmm. So these sensors just weren't designed to be lit up for that long. And I think that's what happened. Your camera just overheated and it kind of just freaked out and shut down.
0: Yeah now steve do you or do you find yourself using live view on your on your Nikon at all or is it just kind of a feature that's you know it 's there and you 'll use it one day
1: uh yeah I, I know it's there I probably will use it uh, one day i, I haven 't really started uh, experimenting with video but i'm i'm close to playing with that and i'm looking forward to it so um, i think uh, in that regard i 'll be using it along with what i 've seen there's a i think it's a company called Zakuto and and um the hood loop they've got these cool things that you can attach to the live view screen your review screen and it becomes kind of your viewfinder and it's kind of fun and easy to uh shoot that way but i haven't really been been playing uh, that much yet all right
0: all right yeah there's isn't that amazing i mean there's so much stuff in these cameras you know depending no matter which which digital slr you have that you you know you like there's there's stuff in my 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 nikons that i haven't even played around with like we were at the what, steve remember what was it 2 years ago or so we were at that um, that yosemite or the yellowstone workshop yeah. and you were explaining how you had your camera configured so that you could you know you basically customized the heck out of the thing um right. and and showed me some things that i had no idea i, I had sitting in my camera bag you know <laughs> so i think you need to do a video or something like that and put it on the site so people can see how steve simon has his hot rod customized I would yeah well
1: say. i got to say though that um, it is worth exploring because once you do and realize there's some some key cool things that you can do to, your, to customize your camera for the way you shoot, um, it'll make a difference. It'll make a, a real positive difference in, in what you're able to get because you'll be able to move more quickly. You'll be able to work more quickly. Um, and, and certain things like, for instance, programming the function button when you're shooting flash, when you press the function button on an icon, I'm sure other manufacturers have the same thing, um, that will, uh, so that your flash won't fire. So you can be shooting a bunch of flash shots Press the function button and then take an ambient exposure so you can, you know, quickly get both without having to to shut the flash off. And if you have auto ISO put on, um, you know, the ISO lamps up and, you know, there's all kinds of things you can do to make yourself work smarter.
0: Yeah, and I, I look at those as ways to customize your camera so that no one will ever ask you if they can borrow it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I can't figure. Out, I have a Nikon too. So I can't figure out how to operate yours. It's like, yeah, well, it's, it's uh, broken. It's special. It's special. All right, guys, let's move on to the picks of the week. Um, This is a time of the show where each guest gives their pick of the week. Remember, a pick can be software, hardware, gear, or even a workshop, whatever, as long as it's photography related. All right, Joseph, first up is you. What's your pick?
3: All right. So my pick, I, I apologize if I've done this one before. I may have, but I don't think so. And I've thrown two in here to make sure, but um, it's all about camera straps. There's two different straps that I use regularly. A The black rapid strap, the RF, RS5, which is a over the shoulder strap that um, that the camera hooks into a, basically a D ring into the tripod socket. And then the camera slides freely from its kind of prone position up to shooting position very quickly, very easily. And the Black Rapid straps, they have a few different ones. The most basic model is essentially just the strap, and then they have higher end models like the RS5 that has pockets on it little pockets for CF cards, business cards, your iPhone, whatever the case may be. And I've found, I've been carrying that Black Rapid RS5 strap around a bunch lately, and I really, really like it. It was an amazing strap. Um, the other end of it is if you're going to carry two cameras, stra- two cameras around. Now, Black Rapid actually does have a dual camera strap now, but I haven't tried it personally. So the one that I own and use all the time is from Camera Slingers, yep. and that one allows you to carry two cameras at once. I know Frederick, you have the same strap there, mm-hmm. and it is fantastic. Uh, whenever you need to carry two bodies around, it's just amazing the way those things will sit very comfortably on you. You don't have to worry about dropping the camera. You can, you literally can drop the camera. So if you want to, you know one of your cameras fills up, the buffer fills, you need to grab the other camera. You can just let go of the one. It'll slide back into place and grab the other one and keep on shooting. So I found those two straps to be absolutely uh, essential. I just, I just love them. I can't imagine you using a regular camera strap anymore.
0: Yeah, especially yeah. The, the camera slinger's dual strap is is excellent when you're, say you're at a wedding or something, right? And you, you need to have a, a long lens and a short lens simultaneously. And by taking the time exactly. to s- swap lenses onto your single camera body, you may miss the shot. It just makes it it's so much easier. And it balances the weight on your shoulder so you are not you don't walk home walking like uh, Quasimodo with that lens.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to add that camera slinger strap. When I was at the Olympics, I mean, I love that thing. I wore it every day that I was covering the Olympics, and I was there the whole time. It was fantastic. It was light. You know, you didn't really feel it. The only downside was my hip would end up taking a lot of pictures because uh, – it would it would turn my hip would turn on the sort of vertical button and then you know I would take I probably shot during the Olympics. Steve, really, there are diets like, for that, you know, right? <laughs> I probably shot about eight hundred frames from my hip. Um, and it was actually my best work. You, know, it, it was,
0: uh, you just blow it up big and frame it no one will ever it know. It's
1: really annoying after a while. But you know, the thing is I turned the thing off, but my hip would turn it on. But I, I suppose I could have adjusted it and and one of the the good things, uh, Black Rabbit sent me one of those straps, the one that uh, you're talking about, Joseph. I haven't played with it yet, but I'm I'm going to definitely give it a shot.
0: Very cool. All right, let's move on. Aaron, what's your pick of the week?
1: Um,
2: I've had an opportunity in the last month to play with something I've been wanting for a very, very long time, <laughs> and I've been mostly waiting for them to create a model that would work with my camera. So that is a Gigapan Epic Pro is the current model, Um, and if... Those who aren't familiar with it, the GigaPan is basically a robotic uh, pano head. You mount it on a tripod. It does all the math and all the physical manipulation and triggering of your camera to take uh, these tremendous panoramas. And uh, the Giga part of the name, GIGA, comes from the fact that you can produce giga or multi-gigapixel images uh, by stitching together. I've I've done some that actually involve several hundred, um, you know, 21-megapixel shots coming out of my 5D Mark II, all shot with a telephoto lens. Uh, it just makes phenomenally high resolution images uh, you can do 360 degree panoramas you can do just incredibly wide you know wide scenes with it um, panoramic scenes, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, the the reason it's been kind of a while coming, they've been building these for a while, but they started building them kind of at the point and shoot range, and then bumped them up to come at some of the smaller kind of DSLRs. It's not until uh, a few months ago when the GigaPan Epic Pro was released that they built one that was large and beefy enough, you know, to hold a large. I think it'll take a 10 or 11 pound camera uh, at its maximum on here. Uh, so I've been out running around with it, uh, you know, doing all kinds of test GigaPan shots with it, and just having an absolute blast. Now, Aaron,
0: um, this is just just to be clear that the it's not just doing a single row panorama. You can set this thing to do a grid over a scene, oh, yeah. right? So you can do. Yeah. Four up and nine across and have exactly. it shoot multi-megapixel images of each segment and then stitch it all together to make this gigantic, realistic image, right?
2: It's, it's quite cool how much of the automation is in there, too, how little you actually have to kind of think to do it. Because I've been doing panoramas for years and using, you know, pano heads where you have to – in fact, the first pano head I had I built actually out of aluminum – Um, The next one that I actually bought later, you finally got to use degree markers, you know, but you had to do all the math ahead of time based on your your lens and your sensor size to know what your field of view was and that kind of thing. On here, you pop the camera in to the mount on here and uh, put the lens on they're going to use. And then you tell it the field of view by it asks you to uh, place something at the, the bottom of the frame and then to move the pan, the camera down and place it at the top of the frame. And by comparing the movements you made between those two, it determines your field of view. So as soon as it knows your field of view when you want to do a pano, you set your zoom and everything on the camera the way you want. It then tells you to rotate to the very top left of your intended panorama and then swing all the way down and and go to your bottom right corner. And since it now knows the field of view and it knows the the top left and bottom right, it instantly does the calculations and tells you how many rows, how many columns, uh, how many shots it's going to be depending on the amount of time you have set per shot. It then tells you exactly how long of the second it's going to take to shoot the thing. So some of them that I've done were like 30 or 35 minutes worth of shooting. Yeah. And uh, I did it on a street corner in Lynchburg, for instance, and had it pan you know, completely 180 degrees wide all the way up the street to a monument, all the way down the street to the river. Well, two, and, uh, I
0: remember two years ago, Alex Alex had one of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a. Uh, it was clearly not the version that you had. I think it was only rated to to hold up to like a G nine or something right. at the time. Um, but one of the things that uh, I wanted to see done with that was a multi-row, uh, gigantic gigapan image. But mm-hmm. then, in, but then an HDR. So like do like 36 images times five you know you can, and then merge program the program
2: f- in the bracketing to the controls, so you could actually have it shoot that
0: <laughs> i think there's a mission in there for you aaron somewhere yep. you, <laughs> I,
2: I've, I've looked at some I'm, I'm actually intrigued in doing that but keep in mind it is generating absolutely huge images as a result so to the process of, of generating the hdr is going to rapidly increase the amount of time it takes to assemble one
0: but you're pushing that you're pushing the envelope though
2: yeah, well, limit. I won't be the first one there, but <laughs> believe me. Um, and, and another thing I love is that it is so precise um, that you can control it. It's automated. So if I set it... For instance, I did one on a street corner where I didn't want any cars or anything moving in, this, in that scene. But naturally, there's people driving by me constantly and walking down the street every few minutes and so on. So I'm a, I allow it to shoot on its own. And as long as the scene that it's shooting is completely static, I'm good with it. But as soon as I get to a case where a car is going to pass through the frame, I just tap a button and tell it to pause for a moment. Hmm. I wait for that hmm. card to pass, and then I hit the button again, and it resumes. Yeah, and cool. if I know, for instance, that a, shot, a particular shot had a problem in it or I wanted to reshoot it, I could just take note of what number shot it was. I can then tell the GigaPan to go back to exactly that row and column later if I want to and reshoot that particular image.
0: That is really cool. So the so precision it's, is phenomenal. It's, it sounds like it's much better than AutoStitch on the iPhone. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I have it's to say AutoStitch works
2: very, very well. I'm impressed with AutoStitch. Uh, but Auto the stitching Stitch. software comes with it. Um, the GigaPan itself is $895, which I know sounds steep, but when you consider what it's doing and how they – What market they could be selling this to is a fraction of the cost I anticipated it to be. Um, And the reason for that a little bit is this comes out of a – it's a product that's designed out of kind of an academic pursuit, I believe, at Columbia, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and if I said that wrong, then somebody's going to get mad at me for giving it uh, the wrong uh, Sound off anyway.
0: in the TWIP forums. Yeah, we'll we'll create one especially <laughs> well, <laughs> for Aaron.
2: I don't know if it was <laughs> Columbia or exactly where it was. Point is, there's an academic background to the creation of this product. And as a result, I think they are pricing it more to make it re- you know, within people's reach than trying to make a mint you know, off of creating it. All so right. they have a whole series of them starting from a couple hundred dollars up through this large one. There's a lot of refinements in it. Nice backlit screen on it, um, rechargeable battery pack that slides in and out. You can charge it in the Gigapan. It's just I haven't even begun to explore all of what's possible with it.
0: And we will we will link to that um well the camera slingers, black rapid and gigapan in the show notes. But also before that, Steve, I know you have a uh, you have a pick as well. What's your pick?
1: Yeah, I was gonna point to um, the New York Times photography blog called Lens, and it's lens.blogs plural nytimes.com. You'll Google it, you'll find it. And uh, today, there's uh, some work from a former student of mine, Andrea Star reese who documented uh, a project called The Urban Cave, where she followed people that were living basically inside this train tunnel in New York City, in, in and around it. And it just, the work is really quite extraordinary. And it, it goes to show that when you stick with the project over time. It just gets better and better and better. And, uh, and, and Star, as we call her, uh, she, she has done really well with this project. It's going to be seen at the Festival of Photojournalism in Perpignol, uh, France, uh, the end of August. And uh, it's just an extraordinary body of work. And it, it, it really has kind of been her passion, and it's uh, reflected in, in the quality when you see it.
0: Got it. Awesome. Yeah. Also, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Now, Aaron, you. I think I got, <laughs> got a message through Skype saying that you found yeah. the origin. Yes, I did. I knew it did not sound right when I said <laughs> Columbia when it came out of my
2: mouth, and I do not want the show to go out with the wrong attribution there. So it's actually Carnegie Mellon. It. Um, it's a spinoff of a project between NASA and Carnegie Mellon University. So that's its origins. Nobody needs to yell at me later unless I got that wrong somehow.
0: <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. My pick is real quick. It's uh, from a regular show contributor, Richard Harrington. Um, he just released a book called Understanding Photoshop CS5, the Essential Techniques for Imaging uh, Professionals. And it's uh, I think it's, it's from our friends over at Adobe Press or Peach Pit. One of those, but it's a really good book. It's got a DVD in there with video training and all that kind of magic and all the source files and all that stuff. So I just got my copy of it a couple days ago. I haven't dug into it deeply, but I wanted to share that it is out there. So click on the link in the, uh, in the show notes to check it out and see if you like it. All right guys, it is time for this week's photo mission. This is new, brand new or it's kind of resurrected. We were doing this a while ago, kind of in the beginning of the Twip days where every week we'd challenge the the listening audience to challenge themselves photographically. So, um each week we're gonna continue we're gonna start doing that again. And we we actually have a special area within the TWIP forums that will house these photo missions. So if you go over to, to thisweekinphoto.com forward slash TWIP, you'll find this week's mission. And the idea is in that in that forum, post your image because we've built in the facility for you to actually upload images into the forum and they display in a cool little light box. Um, kind of method. So uh, upload your images in there. And that's where we're going to use to evaluate and award the winner on next week's show. So the next mission could be yours to win. This week's mission is going to be titled Dirt. D I R T dirt. Now, uh, if you, if you show dirty. up, dirty. yeah, yeah. Well, it could be dirty. It could be dirt. It could be dirt delicious, whatever. But if, <laughs> if you show up with photos of just some dirt, you're going to be disqualified. So we need, uh, it's kind of creative interpretations of the word dirt. It could be like Aaron said, it could be dirty. It could be whatever, <laughs> But, uh, you know, ways to
2: interpret dirty, too.
0: Yeah. But uh, remember, this is a family show. So don't, (laughs) don't, don't upload anything in that dirty kind of genre. So for the full details on this mission, should you choose to accept it, just head over to the photography missions area in the TWIP forums. And let's kick this thing off. This will be the very first one. So exciting, exciting. And uh, all you guys, by the way, are tasked with looking at those images in there and commenting on them and giving feedback. So we'll, all, the, all the show hosts, along with the TWIP listeners, will be in the forums commenting. And you know, it will be a big old photo party in there of people looking at the images they get submitted. Looking at your awesome. dirt. Awesome. Looking at your dirt. Yeah. Dirty laundry. Uh-oh. I'm giving <laughs> hints. I'm giving <laughs> hints. <laughs> all right, guys. Once again, we're at the end of the show. Steve Simon, where can folks find you online?
1: Uh, they can find me at Twitter <clears throat> slash Steve Simon. And um, I just wanted to advertise I'm going to be at the Maui Photo Festival uh, doing a workshop and a couple of presentations. And if uh, anyone's interested in going, um, they can save 100 bucks by putting in the coupon section Steve as the coupon code.
0: <laughs> Steve, cool. you know what you should do? I hate, I, I hate to put you on the spot here, but you should – I know you have a blog. You should write up a quick post for thisweekinphoto.com with the coupon code and just post it there so that all the TWIP listeners that are going to see this episode, they can uh, they can get your coupon code and find out all the details about the workshop.
1: I will do that, Fred. That's a great idea. Thanks. Yeah.
0: yeah. And all right, Mr. Aaron Mailer, where are you at online?
2: Uh, you can find me on Twitter, of course, half press, H-A-L-F-B-R-E-S-S, and then at my blog, which I – Post to ever so occasionally, uh, halfpress.com.
0: All right. And Mr. Joseph Linaski, where are you at?
3: Well, the photography side of my personality can be found at photojoseph.com. And for the Aperture Expert, com, or on the Twitters at ApertureExpert. Excellent. And
0: to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, head over to thisweekinphoto.com. There you'll find links to our Facebook fan page, our Twitter account, and more. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can check out my blog at frederickvan.com or follow me on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Frederick Van. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. Bandwidth for Twip is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com and Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash TWiF. This Week in Photo is a PixelCore.tv production produced by Suzanne Llewellyn with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. Content contributor is Eric Horton.